Hey, everybody. Welcome to History Factory Plugged In, the podcast at the nexus of history and business. I'm Jason Dressel, and happy Thanksgiving. We're going to learn quite a bit today about the history of America's most quintessential holiday. We're going to listen in on my conversation with Melanie Kirkpatrick, who is a Turkey Day expert. We're also going to hear from Kristen Bradley from B&G Foods, the owner of the iconic Green Giant brand. I had a chat the other day with Kristen about the Green Giant's new Guinness World Record for the world's largest green bean casserole. And we're going to hear a little bit about what it's like to be a part of the Macy's Parade, which the Green Giant will be participating in this holiday. But first, let's jump into it and listen in on my conversation with Melanie, which I hope you're going to find is a great primer on the history of Thanksgiving and give you some new insights that you probably didn't know before. Melanie Kirkpatrick is a writer and journalist who spent nearly 40 years at the Wall Street Journal, where she was a longtime member of the editorial board. Among other books, she is the author of Thanksgiving, The Holiday at the Heart of the American Experience. So if you're interested in learning much more about what we cover in our conversation, you can purchase the book, which is available in print or ebook formats wherever you buy books. So let's listen in to what Melanie had to say about the history of Thanksgiving and how it has evolved over 400 years. Hi, Melanie. Thanks for joining us. Great to be with you, Jason, and happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving to you. Uh, well, it's so exciting to have uh, an expert on the holiday with us to uh, to share with our listeners uh, some of the, uh, the the history, obviously, of uh, what's, what's really probably America's most quintessential holiday. And uh, if if I could, I'll, I'll share first kind of my own sort of interpretation of, of the timeline of of of, of Thanksgiving, uh, which begins. 400 years ago, in the fall of 1621, there was a, a harvest feast in Plymouth between the Pilgrims and the Wampanoag. And then nearly 250 years later, you know, and I'm sure a bunch of stuff happened in between, uh, President Lincoln proclaims that Thanksgiving is a federal holiday. And then, you know, some time later in the first half of the 20th century, we get this Macy's parade. And then a little later on in the second half of the 20th century, we add televised football and Black Friday. And uh, I guess maybe the biggest contributions to, to Thanksgiving in the 21st century has been Cyber Monday and Giving Tuesday. Um, and somewhere along the way, we landed on turkey, gravy, sweet potatoes with marshmallows and cranberries and dressing and pumpkin pies, the official dishes. Um, so I'm hoping you can kind of maybe fill in some of these gaps of the timeline and, and, and help clarify where I probably have it wrong. Um, but really, uh, the first question I have, which is really the most burning question and, and really why I wanted to get you on this podcast to begin with, is, Melanie, is it dressing or is it stuffing? <laughs> Thank you, Jason, for that uh, brilliant question. Uh, I get it a lot, and the answer is uh, I don't know. There's a huge <laughs> debate about that, and some say um, it's a divide between East and West in the country. And, and I can't tell you who prefers which one because, uh, again, there's a difference of opinion about that. But um, I will say that I don't think that the pilgrims had an answer e either. <laughs> so um, it's going to be one of those questions that uh, is is going to continue to be fought across Thanksgiving tables for the next uh, century, I predict. 
Well, it's interesting that you uh, you you also land on it being regional. But uh, I actually, my guess was it was regional, but my guess was north and south, not east and west. And mm-hmm. I grew up in North Carolina, and my family largely referred to it as as dressing or as dressing. And uh, and then after uh, marrying uh, into a family from New York and New Jersey, it was definitely stuffing up there. So I was assuming that it, it might be uh, across regional lines. So. Um, but in all in all seriousness, uh, Melanie, what what your book really hammers home is that Thanksgiving is really a microcosm of the American experience, and uh, in in reading it, it's quite more complex and multifaceted, really just like America itself, and in uh, in one of the kind of core stories that. Uh, anyone who who looks into the book, which I, I really recommend, will see, and it's a it's a sample excerpt of the book, I believe, on on the Amazon page, is is the FDR story, and uh, and so maybe first share with us uh, the FDR and depression story of Thanksgiving, if you could. Well, sure, I would be happy to. Um, FDR, uh, of course, was president in the 30s during the Great Depression. And in 1939, his Commerce Secretary, Harry Hopkins, came to him and said, hey, look, Thanksgiving is on uh, November 30th this year, the last Thursday of the month. And uh, that means uh, that uh, because it's late, there, is a short, there are fewer shopping days before Christmas. And so Roosevelt had this uh, dubious, even dumb idea that if he made Thanksgiving a week earlier, people would have a week to sh- a week extra to shop, and uh, therefore that would boost the economy. Well, um, the problem was that Americans didn't have the money. They would have been only too happy to spend it had they have it. So this idea didn't work. But let me back up. When he announced it in August of 1939, it caused a big uproar. Um, Roosevelt was usually a good judge of the political climate, but he he failed miserably here. Um, about half the states uh, said they would celebrate it on the, the new date, the date that uh, Roosevelt um, uh, uh, announced, and uh, the other half said, no way. Um, and then, of course, there was Texas, which said it would celebrate on both days. <laughs> so, um, Of course. It, yeah. Um, and it, it broke down in part along party lines with um, uh, states with Democratic governors saying that they would go along with the Democratic president's um, um, a proclamation, and Republican governors um, refused to do that. So it, people called it the Republican Thanksgiving and the Democratic Thanksgiving, and sometimes it was even called Franksgiving after Franklin Roosevelt. Um, as far as business was concerned, there was a divide, too. Uh, some of the, the big retailers uh, liked the idea and uh, said, great, we're going to you know, try to get more sales. And smaller re- retailers in general disliked the idea. And uh, they, there was a flood of mail to the mm. White House complaining about it. One, why, why did small businesses oppose it? Well, they said that um, 
it, it was one, you know, all this was very personal and emotional. I, I don't think there was good economic reasoning going on here. Mm-hmm. But um, the owner of one small business that I, I quote in my book said, um, we get the overflow from the crowded department stores. And if you add a week of for people to shop in department stores, uh, we're not going to get the business. So I don't know how that it really uh, holds up, but that was one of the arguments. Uh, calendar makers were apoplectic because they um, print their calendars two years in advance, and so um, you know all their calendars were wrong, not just for 1939, but also for 1940. But the biggest industry. Uh, if you want to call it an industry that suffered was the uh, was colleges and universities with football teams because um, there was a tradition in America at that time that um, college football seasons would end um, on Thanksgiving weekend. So uh, it was impossible. And of course, the academic calendars were built around this as well. Sure. So um, uh, deans of universities and colleges and coaches of football teams uh, for, of universities um, wrote to the White House uh, you know, very upset about this. And I, I loved um, what uh, the coach of uh, one of the Arkansas colleges uh, said in his letter. He said, if you don't change it back, um, we're, we're going to start voting Republican instead of Democratic. <laughs> Um, but the whole idea didn't work, and by 1941, after they had you know, two years of economic data about um, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the, the extra week of, of shopping, um, it was clear that it was a failure. The Wall Street Journal ran a story about it and how it, there was nothing to support the idea that an early Thanksgiving would help the economy. And um, President Roosevelt announced that starting in 1942, they would revert back to the usual um, date of Thanksgiving. But before yeah. that could happen, Congress passed a resolution naming Thanksgiving as the fourth Thursday of the month. Roosevelt signed it into law, and so that's where we've been since then. It's always the fourth Thursday of the month. Hmm. Well, that's such an amazing story because, you know, here we are 80 years later and you still have that dynamic of big retail and small retail. And now, you know, during the holidays, we see these campaigns to support your local, you know, local stores and and local merchants. Um, And and you also have, um, uh, it also impacted travel, I should say. I don't have any numbers on it, but uh, the travel industry is, of course, um, uh, hugely impacted by Thanksgiving. Absolutely. It's, it's one of the busiest travel days of the year, the day before Thanksgiving. My, my own mother was, um, I'm from Buffalo, New York, um, which was Roosevelt State, and my mother was going to college in Boston at the time, and uh, uh, New York went with the new Thanksgiving, and uh, Boston, of course, traditionalists stayed with uh, the old Thanksgiving. So for four years, she couldn't, or three years, she couldn't come home for Thanksgiving. (laughs) Wow. Taking a step back into kind of the world before, how did Thanksgiving evolve into this holiday? I mean, what was Thanksgiving like 
before the holiday, we sort of identify it with now where there is this correlation of it being sort of the the warm-up to, 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 you know, Christmas and Hanukkah, yeah. if you will. And, I mean, what what was Thanksgiving like, you know, at different periods during the uh, 19th and 18th centuries? I think it's important to note that Thanksgiving was and still is about gratitude. Mm-hmm. And uh, if there's a day of the year when American families get together, sit around a table um, and say grace or talk about gratitude, um, it's Thanksgiving. And that's, of course, the core of the holiday. And I really think that's the reason that it's, or one of the reasons that it's America's favorite holiday, according to polls. Um, um, And so if you go back to 1621, to the Harvest Festival that you mentioned in your opening, um, uh, that too was about giving thanks. The uh, pilgrims um, had just survived. Only half of their number had survived uh, a terrible winter, and um, they had their first harvest, which would not have been possible without the help of the local Native Americans, the Wampanoan people. And so they had a lot to give thanks for. They also had done a peace treaty with the Native Americans. And so uh, on both sides, there was uh, gratitude. And the idea that um, uh, we were able to live in peace with each other. Now, the there are two eyewitness accounts of the holiday, and neither one of them uses the word Thanksgiving. For thanks for pilgrims, um, that harvest festival was not a real Thanksgiving. A, a, a real Thanksgiving was a day that was called to give thanks for a specific blessing, such as um, the end of a drought or um, a, vic- a military victory. And uh, that day was uh, spent in prayer, but very quickly... Um, uh, these days of thanksgivings, um, very quickly they also came to include um, uh, food and family. And uh, the earliest um, date, the earliest Thanksgiving, I think, was 1636, where there's a specific mention of um, uh, after the worship service, um, you would come together and eat a meal, and the, the, the richer people were told to be generous to the poorer people. So that, um, that crux of the Thanksgiving holiday that we celebrate today started back um, 400 years ago. Um, As it spread throughout the 17th century, by the end of that century, the the family togetherness and the meal had begun to um, uh, have uh, equal uh, weight with the worship services that people would attend. But um, in New England, the afternoon service began to disappear. People went to church in the morning, and then in the afternoon they would have their feasting and uh, good time. And then in the, in the 18th century, uh, the meal really began to uh, uh, take, uh, and the family togetherness began to take great precedence. And it was the most 
um, important holiday of the year for New Englanders who um, weren't, weren't really celebrating Christmas then. Thanksgiving was, was the date. And then we move into the Revolutionary War period, and um, the Continental Congress uh, would call Thanksgiving Day's in celebration of um, uh, the American people. And uh, George Washington in 1789 called the first Thanksgiving uh, for us as a nation. And this was an interesting period because it was the, the time of the first Congress when the new senators and representatives were debating how to implement the Constitution. And, uh, um, there, and this Thanksgiving proclamation of Washington's, which was for the last Thursday of November, was the first presidential proclamation of any sort. And I think that's a really lovely image, especially in an era where we're culturally divided on a lot of issues, yeah. and that um, the, the first proclamation of our first president was for us to come together as a nation and uh, give thanks in whatever way we uh, wish to give thanks. Roosevelt's proclamation was very emphatic that this was to be a, um, uh, a, a holiday that people of all faiths can celebrate. Wow. And it's interesting that it's, as it's evolved, there is this kind of um, uh, dichotomy, if you will, of it really being a holiday about family and faith and being together and being generous, while at the same ta time, for many industries, being one of the most critical uh, uh, times of, of, of the, the year from a, from a, uh, from a commercial standpoint as well. Yeah, so, again, yeah. it's a microcosm of America itself, right? Yeah. This kind yeah. of interesting dichotomy mm -hmm. of, uh, of, of how we uh, have to balance, you know, uh, family and fam work and play, <laughs> work and yeah, life. Yeah, well, I think that's true. And by, uh, in the, um, this is the first, 150th anniversary, I believe, of um, the first American football game between yes. Princeton and Rutgers. That's and, correct. Um, it was very soon after that first game that um, uh, football became a Thanksgiving tradition. And so there's, you have to throw football into the play, too. By the end of the 19th century, there was lots of uh, debate about uh, whether football interfered with the true meaning of the holiday. And, uh, of course, we know how that turned out. <laughs> football is here to stay, and it's become part of uh, the tradition. Yeah. It's also interesting in terms of the the foods that have evolved, and, and many of the foods that are associated with Thanksgiving, as I understand them, are really are native to North America, like cranberries. For yeah, instance. you're right. Um, many and of them are, but but some of them aren't. Um, in one of those eyewitness accounts by pilgrims of the first Thanksgiving, turkey is mentioned, so it probably was on the menu. Um, cranberries um, were they had cranberries, but, you know, if you eat one cranberry, Jason, um, just raw, you don't want to eat another one. It's very, very sour. And the pilgrims did not have sugar with them. Sugar was very, very expensive. So it was probably a few... More years. vodka. 
Yeah, right. <laughs> it was probably a few years before they uh, actually uh, put cranberry sauce on the menu. That said, the Native Americans did dry cranberries and put them in food, so um, it's possible that they ate dried cranberries mixed with uh, something else. One of the um, turkey stories I, I really love has to do with um, a big producer of turkeys called Henry Vos. Have you ever heard of him? He, yes. he was He was the poultry king of yes. Rhode Island. And in 1873, he had the brilliant idea of sending a Thanksgiving turkey to the White House, to President Grant. And that started a 40-year tradition of uh, Henry Vos sending turkeys to presidents and presidents having this turkey um, for their Thanksgiving dinner. And after Henry Vos passed away, others took up the tradition. And so um, vendors of turkeys and lots of other creatures would um, send their produce to the White House um, and then, you know, be able to use that as a kind of marketing tool that uh, their turkey or whatever was uh, one of the things that the White House received. Yeah. What's the origin story of uh, the presidential pardon for turkeys? You know, there's a debate over that, but um, the, you can trace it back to Lincoln um, and his son, Tad. And they had, Tad had a pet turkey that somebody had sent to the White House. The pet turkey's name was Jack, and Tad became very fond of, of Jack. And Christmas was coming, and Jack was going to be on the menu. But uh, uh, Tad persuaded his father to spare Jack's life, and uh, so Jack lived for another Christmas. And then you fast forward to, um, gosh, uh, early in the 20th century, and um, the uh, uh, you had turkeys being sent to the White House, and... Um, I think the first um, might have been Wilson. I'm, I'm sorry, I don't remember which president spared a turkey, but it wasn't official until uh, Kennedy did so in the 1960s. Hmm. And then um, in, uh, when George H.W. Bush was president, um, he formally had a more formal ceremony where he spared the turkey's life. And the turkeys have always been sent to um, recent presidents by um, the, uh, the turkey uh, industry uh, group. So, you know, again, it's a great uh, photo op uh, for them, one of their turkeys and uh, with the president of the United States. Ultimate product placement. Yeah. Yeah. Now, and, and we talked about football and, and the, the the early linkage between Thanksgiving and football. What about uh, what about the Macy's Parade? When did that come onto the scene? That started in the nineteen twenties, I believe. And uh, parades have been a tradition in local communities for a long time. In fact, in in New York City in uh, the nineteenth century, and all the way up until the World War Two era. Um, it was kind of like Halloween. Children would uh, dress up and, or, you know, uh, run around the neighborhood asking for um, uh, candy um, or a penny or something, something like that. But um, there were also parades in New York City neighborhoods and in 
you know, na- neighborhoods in, in other parts of the country, um, their local military perhaps, or um, just you know, people organizing themselves into marching, into fun um, parades, something to do on Thanksgiving morning. And then Macy's took it and expanded it into the magnificent parade we, we watch today. Yeah, and I think my understanding is it actually started more as a as a Christmas parade and then sort of evolved into being more aligned with, with Thanksgiving, which is interesting, too. Well, yeah, it did, but remember, um, it, it still is. It's, it's yeah. uh, Santa Claus um, sure. uh, brings up yeah. the rear of, of yeah, the parade. Yeah, absolutely. It's the ultimate... It's the ultimate kickoff to the Christmas shopping season, exactly. although, of course, yeah. now in this day and age, it starts after Halloween. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, so we, you, we you talked before. I was yeah, go say, ahead. You mean you haven't finished your Christmas shopping yet, Jason? No, I have not. So I'm, I'm a traditionalist. I like to I like to do it last minute in the last like two weeks. So that's that's part of the the fun for me. Although you know, and our tradition is still we always insist that we don't get our Christmas tree before thing. We always get it on the Saturday or Sunday of Thanksgiving holiday. So yes. that's our that's our tradition. Um, and what about Black Friday? When did that become a, a more official um, uh, thing? Well, there's no official designation by anybody of Black Friday, but it got its name uh, in the late 50s or early 60s. And once again, that has to do with uh, shopping. And so this is, there, there are several um, uh, you know, myth stories here, but the one I think is um, probably the accurate one is that in Philadelphia, uh, in the late 50s and early 60s, on the day after Thanksgiving, like many downtowns around the country, uh, it, it was filled with uh, shoppers who would come into the city and go downtown to go shopping, beginning the beginning of the Christmas season, of course. Um, but it was also the weekend of the Army-Navy football game, which was always held in Philadelphia on the Saturday after Thanksgiving. So the city was filled with out-of-towners, traffic was awful, and the Philadelphia um, traffic police began to refer to the day after Thanksgiving as Black Friday. Um, and then um, a Philadelphia reporter wrote a story about um, traffic in Philadelphia on the day after Thanksgiving using the, um, the, the phrase Black Friday, and it caught on, and that's where we think the, the origin of the, the name came from. Interesting, yeah. And now, of course, we have, we have, we have Cyber Monday, and we have... Um, Giving Tuesday. Uh, Giving Tuesday, sure, absolutely. So, so what, what, what have you seen as being some of the biggest changes in Thanksgiving uh, in the last, have you seen any changes yourself in the last uh, 10 years or so of, yes, of following this holiday or is it, it feeling pretty constant? Uh, you know, Thanksgiving is pretty much the same. 
Um, as I said earlier, the focus, I think, in uh, many families and uh, communities is on, um, is, is on gratitude, not on commerce. And one, uh, one of the reasons I hear a lot from people is that, uh, that one reason they like Thanksgiving is that it's not very commercial. Uh, all that changes the next day, of course. But, right. uh, <laughs> but um, two changes I've seen. One is that, um, you know, shopping, we're also used to shopping whenever we want, um, any minute of the day. If you get up in the middle of the night and want to order something, you can do it. And I, I think that uh, Americans are so used to this idea of um, shops always being open that um, the criticism that you heard 10 or more years ago about uh, uh, um, shopping overtaking the holiday it has died down. And, um, uh, you know, sure, uh, you can start shopping Thanksgiving evening if you want to, but um, uh, it's not as criticized, I think, as it was when it all first started, the extended hours. Um, but the other, the other uh, difference I've seen is that you do hear from um, some uh, with so-called progressive ideas that Thanksgiving is something to be ashamed of, not to be uh, proud of. And I, I, that, that idea hasn't gotten much traction but uh, it, it pops up um, once in a while. It, well, every year it pops up uh, on some university or, you know, yeah. somebody says um, yeah. uh, we shouldn't be celebrating this. Uh, one of the chapters in my book is about how Native Americans view Thanksgiving. And the, what I discovered was that, um, according to the – and I interviewed leaders of a number of Native American organizations – is that um, they they celebrate Thanksgiving too, and uh, and there is one person, one leader said to me, um, you know, I'm a Native American, but I'm I'm an American too. It's um, yeah. we celebrate Thanksgiving, but it, we also remember our ancestors and their tragic history, which began with um, the uh, arrival of the English settlers. So. Yeah. Um, yeah, and that that, that kind of speaks to my point of it. It's a, it's complex that way, but at the same time, the origin story is a story of it's a positive story that hopefully represents represents us at our best. Yeah, right? yeah, I think you're right, Jason. It's mm-hmm. um, a moment in time when two very disparate people could come together, uh, help one another, and um, become friends. Yeah, yeah. Well, and certainly uh, in the climate we all live in today, uh, may may Thanksgiving on Thursday be a day when all of us can still still do that in the times in which we live. So, uh, well, let's leave it there, Melody. Uh, thank you so much uh, for for sharing uh, these insights. A fascinating uh, a fascinating conversation, and uh, a, ha- a very happy Thanksgiving to uh, to you and to your family. Thank you, Jason. The same to you. You know, one of the things that struck me about my conversation with Melanie is that the Thanksgiving holiday and weekend really is a dichotomy. 
On the one hand, as Melanie emphasized, it's a holiday that celebrates faith, family, friends, and gratitude, and the spirit of Thanksgiving is inherently anti-commercial. Yet, on the other hand, more than 165 million Americans say they are likely to shop either online or in brick-and-mortar stores this coming Thanksgiving weekend, according to the latest holiday survey from the National Retail Federation. And more people are shopping on Thanksgiving Day itself. According to data from Comscore, digital commerce on Thanksgiving Day grew 36% year-over-year in 2018 to reach $3.4 billion. And based on a shopper truck forecast, Black Friday will be the busiest day for in-store traffic, and Cyber Monday is expected to be the heaviest day for online spending. Adobe Digital Insights predicts that overall, the Thanksgiving five-day weekend from Thursday through Monday is expected to generate 20% of total online holiday sales. Cyber Monday alone has predicted sales of $9.4 billion dollars with anticipated year-over-year growth of 18.9%. And what are all these people buying? Apparently, a shit ton of tech and tech accessories. A survey by the Consumer Technology Association suggested that 82% of U.S. shoppers plan to buy tech or tech accessories during the holiday shopping period. Wireless earbuds and headphones, mobile device cases, and video games are some of the hottest items. But before we digress further into the rabbit hole of retail, let's get back to the nostalgia and traditions of Thanksgiving. And for many, nothing is more nostalgic and more of a tradition than the Macy's Thanksgiving Parade. And now, when you consider the economics backdrop of the Thanksgiving holiday weekend, a weekend considered to be so critical that it even influenced an American president's decision to move the holiday up 80 years ago, it really hammers home why a big retailer like Macy's has invested so much in the holiday over the years. Indeed, this year is the 95th anniversary of the Macy's Parade, which actually began as the Macy's Christmas Parade in 1924. Back then, the big attractions were three floats that were pulled by horses, four bands, zoo animals from the Central Park Zoo, including elephants and tigers, and Santa Claus as the grand finale, a tradition that continues to this day. In 1927, the zoo animals were replaced by the giant balloons that we now know to be part of the Macy's tradition. In fact, at the end of the parade, Macy's used to release the balloons into the air and would offer a $100 reward for any balloons that were returned. But there were some incidents with aircraft, including a pilot attempting to capture a balloon after the 1932 parade and nearly crashing his plane. So they don't do that anymore. But the parade seems to be as relevant in popular culture as ever. It's been continuously televised since 1945, and in 2018, 23.7 million people tuned in to watch. Last year, 40 brands participated in the parade, which was a 35% increase from a decade ago. The parade continues to be a significant marketing opportunity because it can generate brand awareness among a big, diverse audience that tunes in and allows for brands to create new and engaging social media content. One of those brands that will be participating this week in the Macy's Parade festivities is the Green Giant. And last week, I got to talk with our friend Kristen Bradley, who is the PR manager for B&G Foods, the company that owns many food brands, including Green Giant. Our chat was just two days after the Green Giant brand had broken its own record to set a new Guinness World Record for the world's largest green bean casserole. And it was just a few days before the parade. So let's listen in to hear more about how a great brand is making the most of their marketing and PR efforts around the big Thanksgiving holiday and what it's like to be part of the Macy's Thanksgiving Parade. 
Hi, Kristen. How are you? Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Jason. Thanks so much for, ha- for having me. Of course. Well, first, congratulations on Green Giant's newest milestone uh, this week. Thank you. It was a gigantic feat for the brand. So we're thrilled to have broken our own record and set a new Guinness World Records title for the largest green bean casserole. So it was a 1,009 pounds. So it was pretty mammoth. Wow. And so I, I guess my first question is, are you tired of green, uh, green bean casserole yet? Well, uh, yes, <laughs> definitely the planning of making one, um, but it did a lot of good. So we donated it to City Meals on Wheels, which is a charity in New York that delivers three meals a day to homebound elderly. So it actually was uh, divvied up and served to 3,000 New Yorkers, which is pretty awesome. That is awesome. And I was I was actually surprised in reading about it. I would have guessed that there was more cream of mushrooms that went into a green bean casserole, but that's uh, probably beside the point. But uh, I, I guess one question would be, why green bean casserole? So, obviously, green bean casserole is... It's certainly controversial. People either love it or hate it. Um, but beyond that, um, two, we did some research, and two out of three families in America are planning to serve uh, green bean casserole this Thanksgiving. So that's a pretty substantial number. So I think a lot of people like it and maybe don't admit to it. Um, so And it's something that has been around forever. Um, and obviously, with Green Giant being such an important part of many Americans' households as well for Thanksgiving, it just seems like a natural fit for us. I love it. And, of course, you, so you've had a big week with the Guinness World Record, and then next week you're going to have another big week uh, with, the, with the parade, right? Yes. So um, about three years ago we uh, were able to secure a float in the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, which I think is is incredible for us as, a, a, like I said, a brand that's really synonymous with Thanksgiving and eating and family. Um, so it was really important for us to be a part of that, you know, iconic American tradition. Um, so our float has a giant green giant on it. He's about three stories tall. I think I believe his shoe size on the float is like size 76 or something crazy like that. Um, but it's been a wonderful opportunity for us to partner with Macy's. Um, the feedback, especially on social every Thanksgiving, is so incredible. Like Americans just love seeing us there, um, so it's been a really great partnership for our brand. And what is, what is it like? I mean, I can't. What, what's it like to be actually a part of the the, the Macy's Parade? What, what what's that process like? So you um, you sign on for three years. Um, so we're in our third year now. Um, but what I I think the first year is the year that's truly the most exciting because you get to work with Macy's and they're super talented artists and sculptors. I don't I don't know know how they find so many incredibly talented people and they actually hand sculpted our float, which is incredible. Um, so I got to be there as they were making it and just like the craftsmanship and the artistry that goes into like every single detail was, it was mind blowing to me. I think I going into it, I probably would have guessed that like machines make it or there's, um, there's not so much a hands-on process, but it was truly incredible to see it made. Um, and I'm forever blown away with all that Macy's does to put into each and every float and balloon that they make. It's really great. Um, so I think the the building piece is really cool. But then once the float comes to life and you're in the parade every year, I think there's this natural excitement. And from a corporate perspective, our company loves that we're involved and people get to march in the parade um, and we get tickets to go. And I think for, for our brand, it just, it's a great time of year that, you know, we're out there and we're making noise about our brand. And I think when, when Americans think vegetables at Thanksgiving time, we want them to think Green Giant. And I think that the float does a great job in doing that for us. 
Yeah, and it, it's the Green Giant is is such a beloved uh, brand. Uh, you know, we had the opportunity to, to, to work with you and your team uh, a couple years ago, and um, it was really an interesting brand to learn about. Um, you know, one of the things I, I recall is I think AdAge uh, listed the Green Giant as like the, the third most uh, iconic uh, uh, consumer uh, brand character of the the 20th century, and it's a really fascinating history because um, the the history of the company goes back to the early 20th century, but then the uh, development of um, the development of the Green Giant uh, character and brand, um, I think, started maybe 25 years later in the 1920s. Um, share with us a little bit about kind of how that Green Giant um, brand came to be. Yeah, sure. So um, the Green Giant brand, um, well, so back in the early 1920s, it was the Minnesota Valley Canning Company, um, and they were trying to trademark the name Green Giant just on its own, and they weren't able to. So at that point, they developed like a caricature. Um, it was almost troll-like, the giant, um, and they were able to then get the trademark for the figure that they drew alongside the Green Giant, so that's sort of how it began. Um, and I will say early iterations of the giant were a bit menacing and maybe maybe not what you would want to be pitching vegetables. Um, so definitely throughout the years, um, he's been transformed into the green giant we know and love today. But what I think is most interesting about it is Leo Burnett's involvement in the green giant from very early on. Um, so obviously he's an iconic, you know, advertising executive. Um, and so he, I think he really, um, he started working on it when he was at an agency on the Green Giant account, um, and then he went on to develop his own company, um, and then Green Giant was one of his very first clients, which I think is, is a really awesome fact about our brand. Um, and then he's the one that truly took it um, and did like a makeover to the Giant. They added Jolly. Um, he appeared more friendly. Um, we did national campaigns at that time. So that was really like the 1930s, I think, is like when it really started to take off as far as the green giant, like as we know him today. Yeah. And then, of course, uh, is, is, as I learned, a, a lot of people immediately associate um, uh, green giant with Sprout. Um, so Sprout came on like in, in the early 1970s, I think, right? Yep, 1972. Um, so Sprout was introduced. And it's funny, I, I feel like I probably get the most questions about Sprout um, because I think there's this interest in, like, how is he related to the giant? Um, so I know that we worked with your team to research it a bit more so we could answer those questions more eloquently. Um, and so we definitively discovered that he is not related to the giant. Um, he's more of, like, an apprentice and a helper and sort of learns alongside the green giant. Um, so I think that that's... Um, I was happy that we were finally able to say, no, Sprout is not the Green Giant's child or anything like that, because we get those questions a lot. But a lot of, like you said, I'm, Green Giant's like an iconic character in American culture, and the we get the consumers reaching out to us every day asking you know, questions, and a lot of times it's... Um, they worked like in the you know in the mid 1940s say um, on the brand and they want to share something like I there are so many people that just love sharing the history um, of Green Giant so it's it's a really fascinating brand it's it's a pleasure to work on the business. 
Yeah, it's, it's interesting to see even today, you know, I saw in the news that there was a piece about a, a community uh, where uh, the company uh, used to have a plant and they're doing something around naming the highway after Green Giant and sharing you know, a history of it. So it, it really is an iconic and beloved uh, brand um, that, that people just really strongly identify with. Um, yeah, and it's great. And I think there's such pride for anyone that's tied to it in some way. So there's a 55 foot tall green giant statue in blue earth, Minnesota. So blue earth, Minnesota is really where the company began. Um, and they, um, the town just loves this statue and loves everything we do. They built this enormous welcome center. That's gorgeous. Um, and last year I went out there because we partnered with Movember, the men's health charity. Um, and we put a giant mustache on the green giant on November 1st, which was incredible. Um, but it was such a community effort. Like word sort of got out that I was working on this. And then I was trying to source like this giant mustache and like a local furniture maker made it for me and like dyed it black. And like, just, they put so much like love into what they were doing and they were so proud to be involved. And it's just like, there's this, there's desire to support everything Green Giant, and I think it's amazing. So I, we love that we're able to keep these relationships going, really, in all the different areas of the U.S. that the brand has been in. Yeah, definitely. Uh, one of the stranger uh, things we uncovered was the uh, the 1960s band, uh, the Kingsmen, who uh, I, I don't know if they were like a one hit wonder, but definitely the song everyone would know them for was uh, Louie Louie. And they did right. a song on like the Jolly Green Giant's Love Life, <laughs> which I don't know. Yeah, I, so I, that I, was definitely a piece of information we were not aware of until you came along. So that was definitely interesting for us. Yeah, I know. I don't think you guys own the rights to that. Otherwise, I asked my team, I was like, can we play a little bit on the podcast? And they're like, yeah, I don't know if we can do that. But uh, anyway, but it, it's, I, I would say, though, I'm not sure. It's uh, it's not necessarily a song that you, you would probably, um, you know, you probably wouldn't put it on repeat. Let's put it that way. I, I would say that. Yeah, I think that's fair. <laughs> So what? Uh, so what's in store for the future? What's going on with uh, the Green Giant today? Uh, I know it's been a, uh, a really core uh, part of the portfolio there at, at B and G Foods. Um, but uh, what do you have uh, in the mix as you uh, move through the holiday season and go into 2020? Sure, yeah. So um, about three years ago, we introduced um, our veggie swap-ins line, um, which is incredibly popular. So what it is, it's more contemporary versions of how consumers are eating vegetables now. So we have a line of riced veggies and spiralized veggies, veggie spirals, um, mashed cauliflower, cauliflower pizza crust, and that's really been... Um, it's been accelerating the growth of and the popularity of Green Giant overall. I think consumers really want to eat their vegetables in these innovative formats, but no one really has the time to do these things themselves. Um, like, I don't know about you, but if you've ever riced cauliflower from a fresh cauliflower, it's it takes a while. It's messy. You have to clean the, you know, what you're using to grate it. And it's just a lot of work versus we sell it in the frozen aisle. So you can literally take it out of the freezer and you can make it in the microwave right in the bag if you want to, and then take whatever you want out of it and reseal it and put it in the fridge. So 
all of our innovation, it's meant to be a convenience to consumers, and I think that um, they've really embraced it, which is exciting. Um, and we're launching right now, we're in the midst of rolling out about 10 new products, um, so ranging from cauliflower gnocchi, which is kind of like a cult favorite um, as far as people who love all things cauliflower, which these days is most people. Um, and then we also are launching veggie hash browns that are made of one cauliflower and one broccoli and cauliflower. And I think that that's really exciting for our brand because, um, you know, we've been super successful with our swap-ins, but we hadn't, we haven't found a way up until now to swap more veggies into breakfast time. Um, so now, you know, parents and, and kids and can eat vegetables right from the start of their day and get an extra serving in there. The goal is try to make it as simple as possible to get as many servings of vegetables in your diet as you can. Yeah, I just I, I'm just curious. Have you all talked about um, getting the product into vending machines yet? Uh, that's interesting. No, I I don't think we've looked at that because it's frozen. There's there's always some challenges, but um, definitely something that's it's an interesting comment. There's a, we just covered um, on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, I think, there's a, like a new movement with vending machines uh, now that they have the ability with, you know, especially with data analytics to be able to move product more efficiently. Um, the vending machine industry is trying to get more healthy foods into the vending machines. So uh, maybe... Interesting. Like I know like in airports sometimes they have the, you can get yeah, like a salad in the vending machine, exactly. which is amazing um, and, and such a break from regular airports. Food. So I'm sure travelers love that. But yeah, I, I think what I really love right now, it's an, and this sounds silly, but it's an exciting time in frozen vegetables. I think there's so much innovation happening and it's, it's going at warp speed. Um, but I think that, you know, all the brands out there are sort of raising the bar for each other. And I think, you know, companies are rolling out really great innovative stuff. So yeah, I think you could see frozen foods in vending machines in the future. I think that's a real possibility. I like it. Awesome. Well, Kristen, thanks for joining us, and uh, happy Thanksgiving. Congratulations again on the, uh, what was it, 1,009 pounds? Uh, 1,009 pounds. Yep, we oh. did it. Are you going to try to top that in the near future? Well, I'd have to build a new container because we almost overflowed this one. So, yeah, there's a possibility uh. in the future we will. I love it. Well, happy Thanksgiving. Best of luck uh, at the uh, at the Macy's uh, parade uh, next week, and uh, we'll talk soon. Stay warm next week. Okay. Thanks. Thanks, Jason. Happy Thanksgiving. Talk soon. Thanks. Garden in the valley, valley of the jolly. Oh, oh, oh. Green giant. So, for some of you who may already follow other content that we publish at History Factory, you may be familiar with our popular weekly email called Sarah's Friday Email. And ironically, the Sarah's Friday Email that came out just a couple of hours after my conversation with Kristen featured a survey that was conducted by Del Monte. And the survey uh, surveyed their customers about their fondness for green bean casserole. And I'm going to assume that the survey wasn't too rigged, like it only included customers who had purchased green beans and cream of mushroom soup and fried onions. Um, but assuming, assuming that the, the survey was legit, according to the survey, uh, which they did with 1,500 customers, 78% of Kentucky residents, uh, what do they call themselves, Kentuckians or Kentuckians? Probably Kentuckians. Uh, anyway, a ton of people in Kentucky love their green bean casserole. But they are far from alone. 
More than 70% of customers surveyed in Wisconsin, Missouri, Iowa, Maine, New Hampshire, Colorado, and Florida all were surveyed to love or really like green bean casserole. And there were 20 states from all over the country, from California to New York to Texas to Massachusetts to Mississippi, that all had favorability scores of 60% or more. Which brings me to my second point, which is green bean casserole seems to be a universally loved dish in America. It appears to be very popular in blue states and red states, in the north, in the south, and from east to west. So the folks at Green Giant are on to something with their 1,000-pound green bean casserole, and I guess it's going to be time for them to build a bigger dish. So that's it for our show. Thanks again to Kristen Bradley and Melanie Kirkpatrick for joining us on History Factory Plugged In. Really enjoyed the discussions with them. And whether your favorite turkey dish co-pilot is mashed potatoes or green bean casserole or dressing or stuffing, depending on where you're from, happy Thanksgiving to you and yours. I'm Jason Dressel, and we'll be back in a couple of weeks. The holiday season is here. We'll get through it together with more stories on the way. Be well.